If God is so good, why is his world so bad? That's how the Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft summed up the problem of evil, a problem that he also called the only serious objection to the existence of God. If God is so good, why is his world so bad? And the truth is that more people have abandoned the faith because of the problem of evil than for any other reason. And even those who do not abandon the faith, we still have to wrestle with it. It still puts us to the test, maybe even tempts us to unbelief. And it's not some abstract intellectual objection. It's something we feel and live regularly. If God is so good, why is this world so bad? Our readings give us two examples of the problem of evil, people dealing with it, and uh, two very different ways. In the responsorial psalm, it's not obvious, but we see just that. Uh, this comes from Psalm 95, which recalls the trials of faith Israel uh, underwent in the desert. So they were freed from slavery in Egypt, and they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And that last stanza we heard really cuts to the heart of this. Harden not your hearts, as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the desert, where your fathers tempted me, they tested me, though they had seen my works. Meribah and Massa are locations in the desert where the people ran out of water and they lost their faith in God. They hardened their hearts against God. It began with complaining and grumbling and led to rebelling and even accusing God of intending evil for them. And they did all of this, all of this, despite having witnessed God bring them out of slavery in Egypt with the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, all of his, uh, his, his continual presence with them. They still complained, grumbled, rebelled, hardened their hearts against him. Meribah and Massa stand as an example of how we are not to respond to the problem of evil. If we respond to the problem of evil with cynicism and doubt towards God and his goodness, it will lead to the loss of faith. The second example of the problem of evil we find in our first reading. We see a much more praiseworthy response from the prophet Habakkuk. Our reading begins with a pretty good articulation of the problem of evil. How long, O Lord? I cry for help, but you do not listen. I cry out violence, but you do not intervene. The prophet the prophet sees ruin and misery and destruction, strife and clamorous discord, and the Lord seems aloof, silent, absent. But the Lord responds and says, write down the vision clearly so that everybody can read it. The vision still has time, presses on to fulfillment. It will not disappoint. And then the Lord exhorts him, the just one will live by faith. God responds and makes one thing absolutely clear. When he promises something, it will happen. And his promised plan of salvation is unfolding. It was unfolding in Habakkuk's day. It's unfolding in our own. And there's a reason why he permits the evils Habakkuk witnessed and the evils we have witnessed. But we need to trust in him. Habakkuk, for his part, he ultimately accepts the Lord's exhortation to trust and faith, and the prophet counsels us to do the same. 
Habakkuk shows us not only a praiseworthy response to the problem of evil, but in so doing, he teaches us that the certitude of faith is a strong antidote to the problem of evil. Faith is certain. One of the classic definitions of faith is a supernatural virtue by which we believe firmly in the truths God has revealed to us. And we believe those truths and we believe them to be certain because they come from God himself, who is truth himself, who cannot deceive nor be deceived. It's not just certain, right, what God has told us. It's more certain than all human knowledge. And so if we find ourselves struggling with evil, hardship, suffering, difficulties in this world and in our lives, if we find it difficult to wrap our mind around why God would allow a loved one to pass away, or a friend to struggle with a chronic illness, or maybe ourselves struggle with some illness, the certitude of faith is a rock to cling to. God keeps his promises, absolutely. His plan of salvation is unfolding. No suffering is without reason. And what's more, he alone can bring good out of evil, life out of death. And that last point is important for the dynamic found in Habakkuk uh, of, of a prophet struggling with the problem of evil and God responding. That plays out on a, in a dramatic way with the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've said this many times because it's worth repeating. As the Lord hung upon the cross, the world witnessed the gravest injustice ever, the greatest evil ever. God became man and we killed him in a particularly brutal manner. We could imagine one of Jesus' faithful followers at the foot of his cross echoing those words of Habakkuk. Lord, I see nothing but violence and you do not intervene. And God imploring patience. His vision still has time. It presses on to fulfillment. It will not disappoint. And on the third day, that follower would have seen how true those words were when Jesus rose gloriously, triumphantly from the grave. Would have begun to understand that Good Friday was this tremendous evil, yes, but God transformed it into this unthinkably, uh, unimaginably uh, good thing, our salvation, our redemption, uh, forgiveness of sins, and the opening of paradise to the just. Faith is certain, the rock to cling to when we feel battered by difficulties and suffering is that God keeps his promises, absolutely. His plan of salvation is unfolding. No suffering is without reason. And in heaven, we will see the good he brought out of the crosses we bore in this life. The certitude of faith is a strong antidote to the problem of evil, but there's still more. Our gospel shows us that faith gives us the power to bear the hardships of this life with the strength that is not our own, with the strength that comes from God. Our gospel begins with the apostles asking Jesus, increase our faith. And he gives the parable of the mustard seed. If, if you have faith the size of the smallest of seeds, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would be so. Now growing up, I, I, I always heard this parable, I always kind of felt discouraged. Because it seemed like Jesus was saying, if you have just the smallest amount of faith, you could do miracles on demand. Since I obviously couldn't do miracles on demand, I was like, well, I must not even have this smallest of faith. That's not what Jesus is getting at. He tells us this parable to encourage us. If we have even the smallest amount of faith, God can do great things through us and for us. 
including giving us the power to bear our hardships. Think of the multiplication of the loaves. Jesus didn't need the five loaves and the two fish. He could have created it out of nothing if he wanted to. But he took that meager offering and transformed it into something that fed the multitudes. So he can do with us. If we give him this mustard seed of faith, he will give us the power to bear hardships in this life with the strength that comes from God. Because as we heard in our second reading, we've not been given a spirit of cowardice, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. And unlike the Israelites in the desert, we have the tremendous help of the Holy Spirit to maintain the faith and the love of Christ in our life, even in the midst of difficulties. So when we feel battered by the hardships in life, we cling to this rock of faith because it's certain, because it lets us know that God is real and he keeps his promises and suffering's not in vain, and because it gives us the power to endure these hardships. And so practically what we ought to do is make what's called an act of faith. And it can be as simple as saying, Jesus, I believe, I trust in you. And if even that seems too hard, then echo the words of the apostles. Lord, increase my faith. I believe, help my unbelief. May the Lord increase our faith all the days of our life so that he can make us the saints he created us to be.